Welcome to a new conversation with Hani and Peretz, episode two, part one. Our conversation is with a young woman studying to become a female Orthodox rabbi. We discuss what brought her on this journey and where she would like to take it. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So you're now uh, studying at Yeshiva Marat mm-hmm. uh, to be a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi. Um, so could you tell me a little about how you came to this? Sure. Um, yeah, I started off in a different career altogether. Um, I really wanted to go into something that involved writing, something that involved media. And I realized um, about two to three years into doing that job that I needed to do something with more soul. I was going out, interviewing people, learning really meaningful things about the world, meeting very, you know, like wonderful change makers. And I couldn't join them on the ground. And I couldn't work with them and I couldn't stay in their stories. I would always have to go back to my office and then turn them into scripts and then turn those scripts into beautiful, marketable um, videos for people's websites, um, gala dinners and so forth. Um, And at some point I realized that I wanted to be with the people and that I wanted to, you know, be doing the work of the spirit of God's work. And that required you to go to Shivat Maharat. How did how did the, that need lead you to uh, pursue a career, uh, pursue it first as an, an education, to be a female Orthodox rabbi? So I made a big list at some point in my life, and I wrote down every single job, every single volunteer opportunity, every single internship, every single anything that had ever given me meeting. And on the list, I'm like, you know, writing, thought leadership, uh, working with special needs children, um, wor- working with Chabad in college, <laughs> all different kinds of things that gave me fulfillment. And then at the end of the list, um, I was like, oh, that's interesting. There actually is a path that combines all of those things teaching and thinking and um, spirit, being spiritually engaged, prayer, um, thinking about God, being with God, like, and it was rabbi. <laughs> and I was appalled. I just could not believe it. I looked, I, it was like a math equation where I added everything up and then the sum was like, that doesn't make sense. Like that's, this is just wrong math, but it wasn't. Um, and I was shocked because, I mean, I grew up in a modern Orthodox home. I have a very, very traditional family whose who's Judaism, whose Yiddishkeit I love so much and I cherish so much. And it's just the concept of being a woman Orthodox rabbi doesn't match. It doesn't match my family. It doesn't match my upbringing. But it somehow matched me. It matched everything that I had been doing that actually gave me meaning. And it, you know seemed like the viable way forward. So once I realized that, you know, I started kind of talking to people and and people were like, well, why don't you try going to JTS or or Hebrew college or or one of these institutions where it's not such an agenda item or a fight, so to speak, to own the title rabbi. Because women can train to be rabbis in these seminaries and be accepted and not have to kind of 
feel like they are arguing for their spot, uh, studying for smicha in those places. Um, <clears throat> but I couldn't envision myself in those other institutions. I felt like if I'm going to pursue this path, I have to do it in a way that makes sense for how I grew up and makes sense with the Yiddishkeit that I have that I love so much. And so I chose to stay in an Orthodox institution and, as you say, become a, a female Orthodox rabbi. <laughs> Would you say it differently? So that's where, that's where I get caught sometimes. <laughs> such, a, such a heavy phrase, female Orthodox <laughs> rabbi. And here I'm like talking about it like I just accept it, but I don't always just accept it. Um, yeah, I mean, the word rabbi obviously is a loaded term. I'm not planning on using a title uh, when I graduate. Um, I'm just going to go by my name. And um, I do that because my goal is to do the work. And I often find that when I tell people about my pursuit, um, my professional pursuit, um, saying the word rabbi, saying the word maharat, saying the word rabbah, any of these words that you may have heard about or read about in the media, it just creates an obstacle to me doing my work. So I don't feel the need to adopt a title or, or use one. Um, maybe there will be in, you know, I don't know, a generation or so more acceptance of titles or honestly, my, my real hope is that no one will actually care about titles and like nobody should use them at all <laughs> because they're just like, whatever. But that's besides the point. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't plan to use, to use a title. Um, so if you don't plan to use a title, why did you pursue a educational path that was built around creating a title? It's a good question. I think I wanted, um, I still want legitimacy to do this work. I want the knowledge. Um, I want to, because even if I don't use a title, the fact that I will have studied this much and will be able to kind of be in conversation with Jews of all kinds, which is my goal, I think that's really powerful. And for me to have done it within my own tradition of what I understand ordination to be, or like what I understand um, halachic learning to be, it's, it's really... Um, it's challenging because, it, you know, the halachic learning doesn't always match the kind of work that I want to do, but I still think it's important to have that sense of legitimacy and personal authority in that way. Personal authority goes a long way, too, even if it's not public authority among all communities of all kinds. I think that's less important to me because I will have public authority in certain spheres, and more than that, I'll have personal authority, and I'll be able to have... I think more meaningful conversations with more Jewish people in the work that I'm going to be able to do. And that's because of all the learning that you've been doing. I uh, hope so. <laughs> if I'm doing it right, then I hope so. <laughs> Can you speak a little to the learning that you're doing? <laughs> yeah. And how does it compare to the education? You, you, you went to Jewish day school yeah. and you got a Jewish education. Yeah. Um, how does that compare um, the learning you're doing now to the learning you came into uh, this institution? Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, the learning that I'm doing in Yeshivat Maharat is like a, 
a proper traditional Orthodox Smicha curriculum for the most part. So last year I learned Hilchot Shabbos. I learned all the law, I mean, not all, but I learned many laws of Shabbos. It's impossible really to learn all the laws of Shabbos in, in a year. It takes probably a lifetime. Um, and the year before that, I learned uh, Hilchot Nida, the laws of, of what's known as family purity. Um, next year, I'm learning all the laws of Kashrus, Iser Veheter, as it's known. And that'll be kind of like the capstone of what uh, a traditional Smicha curriculum entails. I have never learned like this before. Coming in, halacha was a whole new ball game, and I went to I went to in particular I went to a, my my high school was pretty uh, at the time that I was there was pretty open to women learning a broad range of texts. I learned Gemara, um, I learned you know the standard Tanakh Jewish history, but was also encouraged to be thinking, you know, to learn Gemara and to think differently about Jewish law and be analytical and, and think that way. But still, I had never learned halacha in this way. And learning halacha is a fulfilling intellectual endeavor. I will, I will say that. <laughs> it's fulfilling because it's, it's layered and you can see how it evolves. My favorite is studying the laws of family purity because it's such an interesting path that Allah takes from the Torah, is brought down, um, you know, analyzed by Rashi in the Torah, brought down in the Talmud, analyzed by the rabbis of the Talmud and, and by Rashi and by Tosfot, and continuing to go through the Rishonim and continuing how much how much do you want me to explain by the way like what's a reshown and what's like all that stuff you don't have to uh, you, just, you, you could just okay yeah i'll just keep going okay <laughs> yeah, you, you keep going yeah, yeah um but yeah just following that path from the reshonim into the shulchan arach the base yosef going into the Akronim and seeing how contemporary post-game deal with this, this, you know, what came from a tiny, essentially what's like a tiny little set of sukkim in the Torah come all the way into our modern day and age and become something that is, you know, sort of resembling what the sukkim in the Torah say, but not really because we're living in a completely different place. And yet the practice that the rabbis have developed is something that keeps us together so strongly. And that's, that's how I want to be learning halacha all the time. I want to remember that. I want to like remember that this went through a path, a developmental evolution of sorts. And the whole purpose is to live an elevated life and to have these rituals that actually keep this way of living alive. Um, sometimes I think, you know, there are some days when I'm like, that's enough. If I can only, you know, think about learning halacha in a way that keeps my community alive, my personal heritage alive, that's enough. Some days it's not enough. Some days I'm really, really frustrated and I don't feel God in my learning at all. And those days are really, really difficult because it could have just been that, I don't know, I was speaking with someone who had a huge issue with a certain halakha that I'm learning 
in school. Or, you know, even intellectually, they disagreed with it, they had a problem, and, and, and these, these people who, ha- who have very legitimate issues with halacha, they will very often just choose different paths and kind of move away from traditional Judaism, move away from Judaism at all, move away from community. And so some days I'm like, I'm sitting here in this, in this base medrash, I'm learning, and like as I'm learning this stuff, I'm like, who am I learning it for? And some days I feel like I'm learning it for nobody but myself. Like, who's really going to do this? Who's really going to keep this law? Who I know? Who's in my personal orbit? Like, probably just me. And then there are those days when I'm thinking of all these other people who have already just kind of chosen different paths and they're not doing it. And, and, and I feel close to them. I feel really close to them, and I feel just silly for sitting in the base medrash. I'm like, what am I doing here? I should just be there with them, because they're human beings. And we're all human beings who belong to God, and, and like, I, if I don't understand them, then like, really I'm not doing the avoda that, I'm, that I should be doing. So on those days, learning halacha feels very sad and very lonely. But at the same time, you're finding that it's really enriching you personally, this exploration into, into halakha and basically into Jewish texts, into Judaism, and sort of learning to know its DNA mm-hmm. uh, in a way that you'd say gives you the fortification, the inner fortification, inner strength to feel a deeper commitment uh, to Judaism as you go out and engage with people and trying to bring them uh, to have a deeper connection with Judaism, though the Judaism that you're connecting them with is not reflective in the Hilchot Nida mm-hmm. and laws of Tarat Mishpacha that you are learning. You know, the other thing that kind of sets me on this path is also all the dissatisfaction that I felt with Orthodox Judaism growing up um, and how I feel compelled to change the experience for other people. Not the law, I said, but the experience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So could you speak a little to that? Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little to... So so what I understood till now was that you wanted to live a life of the spirit where Judaism, Jewish people, and mankind in general, but which is all an extension of Judaism because Judaism is... Uh, it was cre- is, is by God creator of all mankind um, and everything that's extended from that. So that led you to saying, okay, if I want to do this, I need more resources. I need to become more engaged, more involved, more knowledgeable, uh, stronger in my, in my Judaism, and therefore I'm dedicating myself on this path to study so that then I can go out and do this work and live this life more than do this work. But at the same time, you're also saying that there are things that I also want to reshape. Uh, means now I'm not only looking to engage with people to give them, to bring them to a deeper Jewish experience of Judaism, but I also want to make some changes into Judaism that I've experienced or that I've observed growing up. Could you speak to that? Sure. I grew up, I grew up in a community that... Most, um, most people familiar with the Orthodox Jewish community would recognize if I said the name. Um, 
it was a very comfortable community with a lot of resources, kosher food, shuls, everything like that. I went to a modern Orthodox day school and I found myself very isolated when I was there from a very young age. I, I had a couple of friends, but no one who I can truly say was a friend, a person who really understood me or how I thought. And as I grew slightly older, I'd say, you know, by the time I was about eight or nine or 10 or something, I realized that there was this focus among the students on just very materialistic things. And, and this is true of, of, of course, many schools where just, you know, this, this brand of shoes is really in style or this kind of sweatshirt is really in style and all of that. But I just noticed it in such a way that it really took hold in me in a really uncomfortable way. And I remember in middle school, I started to read our local newspaper and there were a lot of issues with the public schools. And they were, you know, routinely not passing the school budget in my district because more and more from families were moving in and religious people wanted to send their kids to religious schools and more and more it was Orthodox Jews. And they kept voting down the school board budget because they didn't want to pay more taxes when they weren't sending their kids to public schools. And yet they wanted certain benefits like school buses and textbooks and so forth. So they kept voting out the old people in the public schools, voting in religious people. And then eventually, when I was in middle school or maybe in the first couple years of high school, public schools started to close. And it was shocking. I was like, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, but I learned in social studies that public school is a right. And I learned that in my Jewish school and that that's part of being a citizen of the place. Even if you don't go to the school, you have an option and it's part of living in this country that education is supported and it's not happening in this community because the schools are closing. And I had a lot of cognitive dissonance with that. Um, so, yeah, I just wasn't, I was having a lot of problems seeing myself as a full member of the community I grew up in. And then by the time I went to high school, I actually went to a different high school in a different community. Um, my mother wanted me to learn Talmud, um, which I give her lots of credit for. Um, I, was, I was skeptical. I was already skeptical. I had few friends. <laughs> and yeah, I was there. I saw the same patterns, same focus on wealth, same focus on materialism. Um, this time even a bit more severely. Um, I remember the girls my age would just go out to like fancy dinners and Broadway shows, like for fun. And I was like, I can't do that. I don't have enough allowance money to go to the city and see a show. Like, how do they do that? And I just, I, I just didn't know. I mean, I could figure it out, obviously, but like in my immediate mind, I just didn't know. So... Yeah, that was just not, it just, I, I felt this like very visceral value clash 
and it wasn't working. And I was really disappointed. I realized that these institutions were there to provide their students with values. We weren't in public school because we were supposed to be learning how to live a Jewish life, become literate, deeply literate in Jewish text, in Torah, in Nevi'im, in Talmud, to bring that out, to bring it further, to own that knowledge and all of the values and wisdom that they contain. And it just wasn't happening. It just wasn't happening. And then the college admissions process, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I mean, the pressure that people were under, I, was, I just realized at that point, like, I'm not, I'm not about this. So it was then that I realized that there was, well, I didn't realize it then, but starting then, there was like a little spark in me that said, you're going to have to take this and do something with it and make sure that you have an impact on the next generation such that they don't experience this, that they do grow up in this, you know, so they don't grow up in a place devoid of values, <laughs> um, but so that, you know, people have exposure to deep thinking and, and real, real Yiddishkeit. That's a big statement you just ended with. Real Yiddishkeit. Yeah. In a certain sense, you're saying that what you experienced was social Yiddishkeit, materialistic Yiddishkeit, or not even Yiddishkeit, Jews? Jews gathering together and enjoying... Community? It's like... I mean, yeah, there was community, but it was... It's like they they would come together and just enjoy a life based on all the materials they had accumulated. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now you are dedicating yourself to a life of spirituality. Mm -hmm. And not only personal spirituality, but... Um, spirituality that you hope to impart you want to dedicate yourself to impart and others yeah i wouldn't be here if i didn't have the interest in imparting it for sure <laughs> um so you were interested in going back to that community and imparting it there no <laughs> is that because it's uh too challenging it makes me feel sad sometimes I mean, I go back there, of course. I visit, I mean, my parents still live there. I visit my parents. Um, but yeah, a lot about it was really scarring. And to be honest with you, because this is an honest conversation, sometimes even being at Yeshivat Maharat feels scarring. It, or it reminds me of the scars that I accumulated from being in that environment. Because a lot of, I think, what bothered me about being in that environment was it was just kind of living without thinking. It was Judaism as routine and Judaism without heart. And going back there, I'm sure if I went back there with the intention to impart my, my version of Judaism or, or my approach, 
um, there would be something to offer and it could be received. Well, I just want to, I want to add just on what you're saying and your version of Judaism. Uh-huh. I call it Judaism with spirituality. I mean, ju- it, this is Judaism. Judaism is spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it, it's all about spirituality because the center the or of the orbit of Judaism is... Is God. And God is about connecting in the spiritual sense. Now, you actually, you know, in Judaism, we do it physically as well. Mm-hmm. We don't reject the physical. We embrace the physical, but it's a physical that is infused with spirituality. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's more than your Judaism. It is Judaism as it as as. It is, it's, a, it's intended to be, and that's what you're discovering in both in your text, but you're also discovering that it's not just about the text. It's about the application. It's about the engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you were saying that sometimes at Yeshiva Ma'arad, you find some reflection of that which you experienced in the, in the past. Could you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes directly to what you're saying about this, the core of Judaism is God, which I believe... Absolutely. And, and, we, and at Yeshivat Maharat, we don't ignore God. We do bring God into the conversation through certain channels. But lately, I'm beginning to wonder whether I know what God is when we talk about it. Like, when we talk about God as a group of female rabbinical students, are we all on the same page? Are we all referring to... God, in the same way, are we referring to a God that we feel? Are we referring to a God that we sense? A God that dwells within us? Is it a God of our, of our texts? I don't know. And on any given day, when we have these conversations, you know, usually they're facilitated by a teacher, and, um, and, and I don't know. I, I don't know if the God even that the teacher is referring to is the God that I'm talking about when I... Talk about God. And you don't, you don't know because you, you're, you're, dis, you're discussing it differently, or you don't know because we don't even discuss what it is, this God, that we're talking about. Because we don't discuss what, what God is that we're talking about. And by the way, I think that conversation, like if we were to discuss what God is that we're talking about, we could be discussing it 24-7. It could go on and on and on ad infinitum. Like, because... Because God's role, I think, even we see it in the Torah, God's role evolves because God created the world and the world evolves. And so God being present in the world also changes and also is dynamic and also is within each and every one of us. And there are different makeups of human beings that are alive at any given moment and that are interacting at any given moment. So God, if we're, if we're really conscious of God as the core of Judaism, we could be discussing what is God all the time, <laughs> constantly. Um, and so I'm like craving a checkup of sorts. Like if we were all in my school to sit together and actually have that conversation, be like, what are we talking about when we talk about God? I would be super curious to see what would come of it. I would hope, I, I would not expect anybody to have even one answer per person. I would expect that, you know, God has taken different forms and not whatever, different literal forms, but God has been present in different ways in, in people's lives and in people's studying. But we don't have that conversation. and Which is not much different from the way you grew up. That's exactly true. When we grew up, we never had the conversation. 
Um, it was in a rare Judaic studies class in high school that it was attempted um, and sometimes effective. But beyond those classes, I mean, no. And certainly not, I guess, to my knowledge, you know, it wasn't really a feature of, of the shul I went to or any kind of public, public life, Jewish public life. I never felt like so engaged with the topic. I had to, I mean, I had to basically learn what it meant to feel God on my, on my own. And I feel very, very blessed that I was able to. I know people go through life not necessarily having that experience of connection with God or acknowledging that God is dwelling inside and that we're acting with God every single step. And you, so in a sense, you, did you have to sort of step out of what you're familiar with, mm-hmm. of what you've been taught to have that exploration, to have that connection with God? Do you, I don't know. Do you know this story? I gave up like, yeah, I stopped living a halachic life for like two years so that I could feel God. Did you know that? Not that I recall. Okay. Peretz and I have been friends now for what? Close to uh, a ten long year. time. Ten. Ten, close to 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was I after college. Like I, yeah, at some, I went to Israel, and at some point, um, I guess I'd been living there for I don't know six months. Right, I remember. And I realized that I don't know. I was starting to kind of feel something, like a, a desire to 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 get close to something, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And it was around the time of Sfiras Omer after Pesach, and I had, a, I had a good friend who lent me a book about the Sfirot. If I recall correctly, you love Sfirot Omer. I love Sfirot Omer, yeah. and this is exactly why. So I read this book about the Sfirot, and I decided that every day I would, I would uh, meditate. So for 49 days, I decided to take on a meditation practice. It was something I hadn't done before. I've done meditation in bits because I practice yoga, but I took on this practice, and there was one day... I want to say it was um, probably the 13th day of the Omer. So that Sfira being um, Yisod Shebegvura and uh, foundation within strength. And I was meditating and I saw my body and then I began to see my bones, my skeleton inside my body. And I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to take the vision a little bit deeper and see what was within the skeleton. And then there was nothing. And I felt suddenly very, very scared. Like a whole emotion of fear came over me. And I was like, okay, so there's something I'm not supposed to see. And something that God doesn't want me to see right now. Either I'm not ready for it, or it's unavailable, or it's in formation. I didn't know, but I did know that it felt like I didn't choose not to see that, but I had to do something in order to see that. Clearly, it felt to me like God had intervened. (laughs) In that, in that moment. Um, 
Yeah. So since then, I continued the meditation practice, but then I was like, I have to, I have to figure this out. Like what, what is that part inside of me that is covered? And it was a certain phase of life, of my life. I stopped keeping Shabbos completely. I wanted to just try what it meant to be without community, without having to attach myself to the standard, you know, code of Jewish law, to the standard ritual of, of Shabbos and, and Kashras. I needed to just kind of be independent, sense things out. So I spent the rest of that year in Israel not being observant. And then when I came back to the States, I moved to Brooklyn and I started my career in media. And, you know, I still kept certain traditions with my family, but for the most part, I was just kind of living my life. And Sirius Omer came again and I did my meditations again. And friends would come over and like, you know, totally not involved in religious Jewish community. I wasn't involved at all in, in any kind of firm community, but I would share every single time that I had the chance what the Sphera was that day and explain how, you know, it was a certain kind of divine energy that, that God has, but is also dispelled into all human beings and how we can also own all this, all of these attributes and use them to better, you know, to better the world, to better ourselves, if we really focus on them. And my friends loved it. They were like super into it. And they, and they still ask me, oh, what's, what's today? You know, when it's that time of year. And I started a blog so that I could write some of my thoughts out so that people could see it. And then I was living with God. I wasn't necessarily living a halakhic life, but I counted the Omer to completion every year. Um, <laughs> and with a bracha and um, was actually learning how to live with God. So a few months later, um, I felt like I had, I had found something. I had connected with the divine and I had, I had basically trained myself how to live as an individual with the divine dwelling inside, which is the point, I think. So I started to add things back in started to add back in Shabbos, add back in, I moved again, I lived in a, with a kosher kitchen. And I just started to add things back in. Shul, community life, other Jewish people. Um, and I was fortunate to find a shul where people thought similarly to me and I felt comfortable being myself in my current model of Judaism for myself, whatever that is. And um, yeah, so I saw everything as a process of addition which is a huge blessing because I could have just stayed in that whole mode of like Judaism as routine and one requires wealth in order to be Jewish and, you know, kind of stick, stick around in that life, but I didn't. And I got to really see it as like everything I do is, is a gift, is a bonus to a life that could be without it. Um, and then from there I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. I can go back in. I can go back into my heritage, into my roots. I still, you know, my, uh, my approach to Jewish life still doesn't quite align with how I grew up, I think. Um, not exactly, but I think... In, in yeah. practice or in, or in philosophy? In philosophy. 
Yeah. Is that because now you have spirituality included within it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's more God in Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with like a really strong sense of Judaism as, as I think, a survival instinct. An obligation. Yeah, I mean, an obligation, a sacred obligation mm-hmm. to keep something alive that could have been wiped out. I mean, I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, so that energy was very strong. So you saw, you were raised with this, un, I, I, you'd say it was unspoken mm-hmm. sentiment that um, you need to sustain it, your sustainer, you are, uh, you know, uh, bearing it and you will make sure it remains alive into the future. You are, in a sense, responsible to the past to move it forward. Mm-hmm. I f- yeah, I feel that very strongly. But there was no sense of the present and the future in it, in the sense that the moment of your life and where you're taking, where you're going to do with it, and where, and I would say, it, it is Judaism is taking you, where it's taking you into the future. Instead, it's more about uh, sustaining the past and, and, and keeping it alive. Mm-hmm. And, and in a certain sense, you weren't, you didn't matter. No. In the sense, you had your obligation to your past and to, and to, uh, to, your, to your legacy only because you're an extension of that legacy, but you could be anybody and nobody at right. the same time. Right, right. It's true. I, I, I've put that into words before, and I'm never quite sure how my family would react to that because the sentiment is valid, I think. We, as far as religious life is concerned anyway, um, I always felt like we're religious because it's very nice, but more than that, because it's something that we need to hold on to, that we need to do, that we need to practice, that we need to make sure we transmit. And even if, you know, even if, if family members are not observant in the traditional way, they should have the knowledge. And when they do come back to be with family, we should be traditional because it's something that we're preserving. It's something that deserves to be preserved because it was almost eradicated. So, yeah, the main question is, are you participating in that preservation or are you not? And it seemed to me there were ways to participate and ways to throw it all off. I think maybe we could call it Holocaust Judaism. Holocaust Judaism. I call it Museum Judaism. Museum Judaism. And that sentiment, I think, worked for obviously one, two, maybe even three generations post-Holocaust in your third generation. Mm -hmm. And in your generation, I think it's starting to wane. But I think in the future, it's it's not going to work. I think you're already seeing it not work. Well, (laughs) in the third generation, it's breaking apart. In the fourth generation, it's non-existent. No, no. Thank you for listening. This conversation continues in part two. Welcome your thoughts and feedback at anewconvo.com.